lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for being here today. Uh, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission. And on behalf of myself and those of us who call Mission Church our church home, we want to thank you guys uh, for hanging out with us. Um, on, by way of announcement, Pastor Justin will do some of those at the end. But specifically, um, I want to make an announcement toward this. I'm kind of opening up a, a discipleship group. It's for guys and gals. Um, that's kind of, we're calling it D3. Sorry, it's real catchy. Um, it stands for Drinks, Discussion, and Discipleship. And what's going to take place is one Sunday, oh, excuse me, one Saturday a month um, at Starbucks on Scottsville Road. Um, it's going to be for one hour. That's all that you're expected um, to be there. Uh, but it's going to be a time of discussion, really um, working through um, Christian, a certain Christian book. And the first Christian book that we're going to work through is The Reason for God by Pastor Tim Keller. Um, and in that, I'm just encouraging you to read that chapter. You'll come on that Saturday morning for that hour if you so choose to do that. And, and we'll kind of work page by page, just looking through this, being challenged by this, also looking at how it reflects in God's Word. And so if you like um, good books, drinks, discussions, discipleship, and that's something for you, then I'll extend it, that to you. The first one is actually next Saturday. Um, at 7 uh, to 8 at the Starbucks on Scottsville Road. So if you'd like to come hang out with me and uh, drink some coffee and teach me the word, then I would love for you to come hang out with me, all right? Um, so today we continue a sermon series called the Gospel-Centered Church. Since chapter 12 of the book of Romans, we have been exploring this idea that Paul has been expounding on now for 12 chapters um, in these last few chapters, as these kind of as college students are visiting with us here today, you know, that, that conclusion is really, really important. And to Paul, it was extremely important as he's uh, bringing this letter to a close that he takes all of this theological, beautiful understanding of the gospel and apply it specifically to this church's life. And so that is what he's doing in these last few chapters. And so today we're going to talk something that I'm really... I'm interested in, I'm interested in all these sorts of things, but in this particularly, because since the time I was a little bitty boy, um, I have had high ambitions for myself. Um, I still do. Uh, I have high expectations, high ambition, um, a, a big drive about me. I'm a very passionate person. When I, I, I have a ten tendency to have tunnel vision toward certain things, but from kindergarten Till right now, I mean, I just have a huge drive that if there can be a team leader, I want to be it. Um, if there can be a highest position, like in high school, it was I want to be student body president. Well, my God, I'm going to do that. And so that's what I did. If there's a position in a company, um, I've always had ambition to grow to the top of that. Now, where does the gospel collide with ambition? All right. And so the gospel is really going to speak into this idea as we look today from the Apostle Paul as he's writing this letter to the people at Rome is, is what about ambition and how does the gospel, in view of the gospel, how does that affect our desire for drive? Is that bad? Is, is that sinful? How do I, even myself, uh, you know, just really battle and wrestle with these ideas that are within me to want to achieve? And are those sinful? So that's kind of where we're going to be heading today. You know, after spending several chapters unveiling these depths, 
Uh, we see in chapter 12 that we're supposed to view all of these things again in view of the gospel and in view of the gospel then offer our bodies as living sacrifice. A lot of times we say in church that worship is singing. That's one aspect of worship. True worship is your entire life is worship. It is laying yourself as a living sacrifice, not just laying up there and dying, uh, uh, but lying, lying, laying yourself up there and living for the sake of God's glory and for the good of his people. So Paul has concluded this letter in love and with humility and with gentleness because he realizes, if you've been with us for the last two years, um, that some of the things that Paul has said all right, um, can be extremely difficult for us to digest, especially if you don't know this person. And Paul, personally, does not know the church at Rome. He's trying to build a relationship. But he realizes that some of the things that he could have said could be taken poorly or in a difficult manner. And yet, Paul is speaking in this because his hope is, as we read in Romans chapter 15, verse 15, that they have heard this truth in love. In love. So, he says this. Um, though in difficult, he, he does not apologize for the boldness because he says this in verse 15. Read along with me, or 17. In Christ Jesus, um, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring to the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So in this, Paul is, in these statements, Paul is illustrating what it means that to, how to view oneself in view of the gospel, that God has called him specifically to spread the gospel to these Gentiles. But in that, Paul realizes that himself, this church planter of church planter, this pastor of pastors, this missionary of missionaries, this called man of God, that he views himself compared to the person and work of Jesus. Man, I, I am nothing. I, I realize my position. And yet God is in the process of using men and women who are completely unworthy of this calling to be used for great and powerful things in the spreading and the advancement of the gospel. This is important for Paul because in this he realizes that he is compelled to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. All right. So in this, Paul kind of illustrates to these people who don't know him. He's been talking about, he's been calling them to repentance. He's been speaking to the truths of the gospel. He's unscaled deep, deep layers. I mean, we start getting to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9. I mean, he spoke deep truths into the lives of these people, but he wants them to know it is because he has been radically changed by Jesus. And so he continues on where he says this in verse 20 and 21. Read with me. And thus, I make it my ambition. If you have your own Bible, circle, underline, highlight the word ambition, because that's what we're going to talk about today. To preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, least I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. 
stand. So this idea of ambition, Paul uses this term here, uh, you know, it means meaning a, a strong to desire to achieve something, typically um, requiring determination and hard work. Now, all of us are citizens of America. Ambition is something that is ingrained into us from the time that we're very small children. I mean, America, it's the land of the free and home of the what? Brave, right? This is in us. It's the land of opportunity. It's the reason why a lot of foreign people like to come here because they believe that they have great opportunity to achieve their dreams. They have ambition for this. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for this. Are you? I'm thankful to be an American. Um, but we're told from a very, very young age, we look at our children and we say to them, we look them in the eyes, we get on our knees and we say, you can be anything that you want to be. Okay? And then you realize that that isn't true. But we tell them that, right? I wanted to be an NBA basketball player all my life until I got cut from the team every time I tried out. I quickly began to realize I stink at basketball. Like, I'm Rudy. Like, I will play harder than anybody out there. But I am terrible. But my parents told me I could be anything. All right? I tried to fly my entire life. And now I hate to get on airplanes. But I have jumped off of many things with a plastic bag over my head or paper wings on my arms running through the fields in Franklin. I mean, I couldn't do that. I wanted to do that, but I couldn't. But it is still a part of, of us. We believe this. It is in us. You know, we're, we're told things that you can achieve anything. We teach kids at school now, work hard, play hard. Begin with the end in mind. The seven habits of highly effective people. Um, do good in school. College students, you've been told this. Do good in school so you can go to college, so you can get a degree, so you can get a real good job and make lots of money. Is that true? No. All right? It is not true. Okay, you can get a college degree and still not make a lot of money. Okay, now I'm big on college. I think you should go. All right, now there are a few people out there going, "Well, that's just not true of me." Well, congratulations, praise be to Jesus for you. Okay, you know, but it is it is in us. We we call this the American dream. As Americans, we have a desire to win. Right? I mean, I watch the Olympics, I am yelling and screaming at the television. Okay? I want us to win. I want us to be the best, to be number one. You can see this in how, as Americans, how we spend our money, even how we police the world, how we're trying to, in some way, make sure that democracy and this American dream is spread throughout the world. Um, have I see this a lot in sports. I love college basketball. And specifically in college basketball, you'll see this. You'll see a basketball team that is getting completely drilled, won't you? I mean, completely drilled, all right? I mean, it looks like an NBA team against a junior high girls basketball team. There is a complete drilling 
taking place. And yet the cameras from CBS or ESPN will pan over to the, to the cheerleaders or to the student section if they're playing at home. And what are all those kids doing? We're number one. We're number one. You're not number one. You're getting drilled. You're terrible. But we believe it. Man, we're number one. It's like there was a movie that came out a few years ago, and I think it was an Asian person that said this to America, and they said, you Americans, you think you're number one, but you're really number ten. All right? It's in us. We think we're number one. Even if we're terrible. It's in us. Ambition, desire, dream, drive. Uh, this concept is, is deeply woven into the fabric of our nation. Ambition, let me be clear. Um, everyone in this room has ambition. Every one of you. I believe every person on the planet has ambition. You can be ambitious toward your job. You can be ambitious toward your children. You can be ambitious toward getting a spouse or the spouse that you've got. You can be ambitious toward a hobby. Um, I believe that even the laziest people on the planet, they're ambitious. They're ambitious toward being what? Lazy and doing absolutely nothing. They're ambitious about it. If you meet these people, you will quickly recognize they are dedicated, sacrificial People, they want to be the best at doing absolutely nothing. That's ambition. Ambition in and of itself isn't a bad thing. What makes ambition either good or bad is to whom or what you're ambitious for. Now, the problem with ambition that is resting inside of every one of us is sin. It's sin. All right? From um, the very beginning of creation, our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided and desired. They were ambitious to stand out. They wanted to be distinct. Uh, they wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be God. See, selfish ambition uh, was the, comic, uh, the cosmic sin of our first parents. And this cancerous seed is deeply rooted in every one of us. We all want to be God. This is the way sin, Satan, and death penetrates our lives. Paul alludes to this concept way back in Romans chapter 1 when he declares, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts uh, were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. So ambition, not a bad thing. What causes ambition to be bad um, is a selfish ambition, is a sin within us to take opportunities that God has provided for us and to make them about us. James goes on to talk about this when he says in chapter 3, verse 14 and 16, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Paul goes on Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, our temptation, um, brothers and sisters, is to be ravenous um, and to have a, a ravenous passion toward our own name. To make it about us. Even when we say things, oh no, 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 no. Can secretly be still about us. It's called false 
humility. And we, we wrestle with this. We, um, it, it is dark within us. And yet, as Paul tells us also in the book of Romans, that we are to war against our sin. And that calling us, feel like God is calling us to make war against the sin of selfish ambition. See, once we view ambition in through the eyes of the gospel, then we can be able to see ambition and to pursue am- ambition because Jesus can redeem our ambitions. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to be the very best at whatever it is that you do. But we must learn to have that and to view that within the confines of what it means to be a person of the gospel. See, Paul is pursuing what I'm calling this morning a holy ambition. A holy ambition. Paul's ambition uh, was very different from most people. It was a holy one. Look at what he says. Again, verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named. Least I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. See, Paul's holy ambition in view of the gospel was to preach the same gospel to people whom have never heard about Jesus. This ambition controlled everything in his life. It controlled where he ate, where he slept, where he went, where he traveled. And it also hindered him from doing other things that he wanted to do. Keep going on, verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. All right? But no longer since, excuse me, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. All right? So Paul is wanting to go to Spain, and on his way of going to Spain, he's going to go through the city of Rome. And, and he hopes to do this. He has longed to do this. There is many people in Spain who have never heard the gospel. And yet, Paul is hindered from going there. Why? Because he's spreading the gospel in all these other unreached people groups. And he's so busy doing that that it's keeping him from doing something other that is also good. And that's going to see the church in Rome. Now, John Piper um, says this, Holy ambition means something you really want to do that God wants you to do. Something you want to do so much that it keeps you from doing other things that you also really like to do. See, God has not called you to coast through life. God has not called any of us to be average. God has not cost called any of us to be mediocre and just kind of go through life. Ladies and gentlemen, Mission Church, brothers and sisters, God has called us to something greater. He has called us as a group of people, as His children, as His sons and daughters, as His prince and princesses, as the stewards of this earth. He has called us to live passionately for His glory. He has called you, He has called me to a specific holy ambition. Now, we see men and women of faith throughout Scripture who have a holy ambition, don't we? Nothing could stop these men and women. Nothing. Nothing could. Uh, They were persecuted. They were made fun of. They were tortured. They were abandoned. They were uh, made wealthy, some of them, 
Some of them were made poor. Why? All for the sake of God's glory being made known. Quickly, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a systematic way of looking at Scripture, just some quick bullet points here. I mean, we start out with the book of Noah. All right? Noah's living in a desert, and God tells him to build a boat. I think that's a pretty ambitious thing. It took him years. It took lots of ridicule. It took lots of people laughing at him, mocking him, all these sorts of things. And yet he continues to build a boat in which he is going to place, and God is going to help him to place all of the animals and his family on this ark, and he is going to protect them um, and start over. Moses, you had that whole burning bush incident, but yet what is Moses' problem? He keeps telling God, but I can't do this. I don't talk very well. It's believed that maybe Moses um, had had a stutter or had some sort of issue where he did not speak very well. We kind of get this picture of uh, Charleston Heston, you know, standing up in this big powerful voice, let my people go. But what if Moses had a lisp? That changes your whole prince of Egypt, right? He had issues. He had He had excuses, right? And yet, what does God tell this man? You're the leader. I've called you to do this. This is a holy ambition. It's believed that millions of Israelites were in Egypt. And you're one dude who's just had a bush talk to you, and he's telling you to go back there when you just killed, or several years earlier, you killed an Egyptian. And he's telling you to go. It's a death march. It's a holy ambition, and yet Moses goes. David, the Bible tells us he was easily overlooked. He was the rut. He was puny. He was a harp-playing shepherd. I mean, how many dudes do you really know? I'm talking about real dudes, like dudes you look up to. (laughs) Your heroes play the harp. (laughs) I mean, I didn't grow up with like a picture of David, like a dude in a loincloth playing a harp on my wall going, I want to be that guy, right? But he had a holy ambition. I mean, his own daddy didn't even believe in him. Sam, uh, wasn't it Samuel that comes um, to, to tell them which one is going to be the king? And all of the sons line up. And he tells them, no, 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 no. And he asks him, do, do you have any more? Jesse, do you have any more sons? Yeah, David. But you don't want David. Yet what does God do? Nope. You're the guy. Don't mess with David. We learn later, David will beat you to death with that harp. He is a bad man. He is a warrior. Why? Nothing can stop this man. He has a holy ambition. Man, I wish that we could read the entire book of Nehemiah today. If you read the book of Nehemiah, there's this guy. He's Nehemiah. He is the second person in charge in all of Egypt. All right, he's not. He is a Jew. He's working for Pharaoh. He's the the main guy, other than Pharaoh. Word comes to him that the walls have fallen in the holy city of Jerusalem, and the Bible tells us in the book of Nehemiah that he 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 begins to weep. That this desperately moves him to the point where he has to go to the Pharaoh, who isn't a follower of Yahweh, and say, "Hey, Pharaoh, I need your permission to go build the walls." Back in Jerusalem. And and by the way, I need your credit card. I need you to fund this deal. And what does God do? Gives it to him. 
Gives him permission to go. Gives him the money to go. Supports this. And I think the Bible tells us that they do what should have took them a lot longer. They did in a shorter amount of time. Why? It was a holy, God-ordained mission that God had placed into these people. Disciples, you're fishing one moment, following God the next. Paul himself, persecutor of Christian, God wrecks his life and gives him a holy ambition to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament um, is from the Apostle Paul. Go figure. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I have a whole sermon that I do on this passage, but quickly it says this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 through 31. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, though through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Your worst of days does not compare to this man's life. All right? Dude was bit by a snake, and immediately Pastor Justin's like, "Uh uh-uh, Lord, I give up. My wife, "Uh uh-uh, Lord, I give up. Todd Hazel, "Uh uh-uh, I give up. You just said snake. I'm running from the snake. This man was bitten by a snake, kept on going. Shipwrecked. Am I the only person that's scared to death of the ocean? Now I'll get on the ocean. I'll go swimming. But being out the, the ocean and thought of being thrown off a ship and floating there for days, to me, that's a nightmare. This man experiences shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck is adrift in the water. Gets out on shore and what does he do? Goes to share the gospel. Goes and shares the gospel. There is something within him. There's a Holy Spirit power that is embedded into this man. It is a holy ambition. The only thing that keeps this guy, Paul, from preaching the gospel was for you to cut off his head. And according to church history, that's exactly what happened to Paul. That's exactly what happened to him. And and do you know where they did that at? In the city of Rome. In Rome. To their surprise, even in death, Paul was completely convinced to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know what we call these people? Crazy. Brainwashed. Fanatics. You know what the early church called these folks? Christians. Called them Christians. They were believers. They were brothers. They were sisters. There was nothing special about these men and women. We're not talking about the best of best. Most of these people would not have been chosen first to play kickball. Yet... They were completely convinced, even to the point of reckless abandonment, of security and safety and prosperity and acceptance. Why? For the call of God upon their lives. Where 
are the modern examples of believers with holy ambition. I do believe they exist in the world. But do they exist in mission church? Mission, I am convinced that God has a holy ambition for every one of you. Please, we have a high view of the sovereignty of God here. We have a high view of the sovereignty of God in all things. And yet, we must stop using God's sovereignty as an excuse to remain where you are. God is sovereign, but we must not blame him for our sin and disobedience. Let me be clear. I'm definitely not saying that every one of you um, need to be foreign missionaries. Um, I'm not saying that every one of you need to be pastors. I'm not saying that every one of you need to be church planters. But I am saying that um, some are called to do these things. But most of us are going to achieve our, our holy ambition actually through your occupation. A lot of you guys in this room um, are teachers. Um, you're educators. And, and when you can view your job uh, through the lens of the gospel, you will begin to realize that your purpose for teaching and educating is not about common core and star testing and cape rep, but it is for the glory of God. God can reveal His holy ambition, whether you are a person that cleans sewers or whether you're the President of the United States, God can use those things within your life for His glory and for His good. We should strive as believers to be the very best at whatever it is you do. If you're a student, you should be the best students in your class. If you're an employee at a job, if you're a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is that you do, we should be doing that the very best because God is using that in a very specific way and should be using it in a very specific way as a holy ambition in our lives. God needs to call some of you to be like the rich young ruler. Some of you are... Money is your God, and God is speaking to you, and, and you need to be made poor in order to bring glory and honor to God. Others of you, our prayer is that, that God would make you filthy rich. Why? So that you can be more generous. Both of those, God can work in and through as a holy ambition within our lives. He tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, on the flip side of that, I do want you to see um, this. Some of you need to drop whatever your plans are. Whatever ideas you have for your life, you need to drop those. Whatever concepts of what you want to be and what you want to do, you need to drop those ideas. And you need to go. You need to go. Some of you need to begin training to be a pastor. 
Some of you need to train to be a Bible translator, a foreign missionary, etc. Let's get real and practical. Some of you think that you're done having kids, yet you need to have more. You need to adopt. You need to be foster parents. Some may realize that you need to downsize your home, budget better, so that you can give more. Um, Moms, if you aspire to be a stay-at-home mom, and I don't think that you're more holy because you aspire to do that, I think a, a woman can be a believer and work in the workforce. But if you aspire to do that, and that's what you want to do, make the sacrifices, make that holy ambition embedded within you and do whatever it takes for you to be a stay-at-home mom. I think that's a true noble calling. It's not a greater than, but it's one. Singles, write this down because you don't believe me. You have more time in your life than you ever will. Can I get an amen? amen. You notice all the singles are like, I don't believe that. I mean, if I was to survey our college students and singles, well, I just don't have time to do anything, liar. You liar. Okay? You liar. You have more time. College students, you have more time. And we waste more time as college students. I know. I took lots of naps. All right, I skipped lots of class, took lots of naps, played a lot of basketball, didn't read a lot of books, all right? You have more time than you will ever have, all right? As a parent, one day you will long for 8 o'clock to come at your house. Lord Jesus, if I just get to 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock, I'm going to have some me time. And then you get old like me, and by 8.30, you're dead asleep. It's finally your time and you're using it to sleep. All right? I mean, I have had to start drinking coffee at nighttime. Because I typically get up at 5 o'clock. By 6, 6.30, that's when we typically try to play games, have a family devotion, and I'm like, yes. I, I, now, I used to not get as a kid. This is off the page. You can't feel. Like, my grandparents used to go to sleep after the Channel 5 news went off. You know what time Channel 5 News used to come? It comes on at 6. Old people, really old people, go to sleep after that. And I used to be like, how do you do that? And now I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. you got more time, single people, than you will ever have in your life. Stop wasting that gift. Now, since your parents don't go to church here, I'm going to say something that will make them upset. Some of the best things that some of you guys can do is drop out of Western and give a year to holding babies with AIDS. Give a year to building water wells because most of the world doesn't have it. To visiting in foreign countries, to dedicating your life to a foreign country, to taking the Bible. Some of you, the best thing that you can do It's to do that. Others of you, and you think you're coasting right along. You got your family, your 2.5 kids, all right? You're coasting right along. You've got a job. You're getting paychecks, all of these sorts of things. And yet God is calling you. And my prayer is that he's, He's calling all of us to a holy ambition. But man, I'm praying specifically for families within our church as well and singles within our church that will lay down their whole, their selfish ambitions to pick up a holy ambition 
for the sake of the gospel. In just a few weeks, uh, one of my closest friends and, and heroes, Mark Phillips, is coming to speak to our church. Mark and I were best friends since like second grade, all through high school. And Mark, a few years ago, pastor, he was a staff pastor at a big church here in town, all of a sudden feels God's call to take his family and move to Africa, West Africa, to spread the gospel to unreached people groups. He's got a wife. He's got kids. And if you have any idea what's going on in the news in Niger, where they're burning churches and killing people, and this is where Mark and his kids are spreading the gospel. Is this crazy? Yes. Is it risky? Yes. Is it dangerous? Yes. Is it reckless? Yes. Is it faithful? Absolutely. And people will look at him and say all of those things. And they'll look at you and they will say all of those things. Why? Because it's a holy ambition. See, whatever you are ambitious toward, you will sacrifice for. In view of the gospel, what are you sacrificing for? See, this seems ridiculous to even say these things in the church. Because most of us aren't living towards something that is holy and ambitious. We're just kind of coasting. This is the normal Christian life. This is what everybody does. So let's just... Let's just make it through, get our fire insurance, don't go to hell because that's a sucky place, and make it to heaven with everybody else holding hands. And yeah, this is not what we see in Scripture. A holy ambition is like storm chasers. You ever guys watch those storm chasers? Those nuts out in Kansas and Oklahoma? They get in a big steel armored car, right? It looks like the Batmobile. It weighs like 15 tons or something crazy and they chase after or to, after a tornado you seen this stuff right now what do you do if you catch it all right now, i've seen the movie twister you get inside of it and you hold on to a pipe and you watch it <laughs> and you make it through it right I mean, think about it. A, a, a holy ambition is, is kind of like a storm chaser. You've got this massive power. You have this massive glory. And, and though you can get close to it and you can watch it, you can't really grab a tornado and put it in a jar. This is, but you're abstaining or you're, you're going as hard as you possibly can to do what? To get to it. To get to it. It's what your ambition is. You're chasing after this. They know they can never really catch a tornado, and yet it does not stop them from pursuing it with their time, talent, and treasure. Everything within them is pursuing after this. The times of playing it safe as a believer are over. This is what Pastor David Platt says is, is writing God a blank check. It's saying to God, man, whatever you would have for me, whatever I have in this life that I need to cash in, I will be willing to do so. Mission Church, are we willing as individuals and as a community to write a blank check to God? Whatever you have, um, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever you have for us, Lord, we surrender to you. In view of the gospel, we have no other response than to radically abandon our desires for 
the sake of his. This goes right along with things that we've been talking about, how that our personal preferences, man, sin, Satan, and death will use all of those to weave into our um, church and to whisper the, the very whispers of hell into the lives of people to cause division or to make sure. I mean, like we said last week, we're the, we're the church that offers what no one wants. But what if that means that's what we have to do? What if, I wonder, what if the, to reach our city, we need to start meeting at Sunday, or let's say Tuesday night at 9 p.m.? Well, Pastor Eric, that, we go to church on Sunday. God didn't show up on Tuesday night at 9. I mean, that's when scandal's on or something. <laughs> All right? I'm asleep by nine. I am. Or at least dozing. Are we willing to make that sacrifice? Are we willing to never have a building and to set up for 50, 60 years in order to be generous in the spreading of the gospel? I think these are all big questions that we need to ask Is it going to be easy? Nope. You know what we do in America when it's easy? We put in an express lane. We put in a drive-thru. See, trusting God for holy ambition will not be easy. There will be opposition from within and from without. Yet, we must, believers, stay the course. Opposition. If you desire to pursue a holy ambition, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that God's holy ambition on my life is to plant this church. And there has been opposition from within, and there has been opposition from without. And yet, I can't stop doing this even if I tried. Because God has put it into me. It's ingrained into me. Like if it's me and my wife and kids and Laura's doing children's ministry with my kids going through the gospel project and I'm preaching to an open room in here, then that's what I have to do. Because it's what God called me to do. It's what he's placed inside of me. Should you be doing this? Maybe some of you should be. All of you? No. And opposition is tough. Some of your closest friends will come against you. Um, your family may not understand, especially college students, you call your, your parents and say, I went to a random church today, and the pastor told me I need to drop out of school and go give my life to Africa. I'm going to do that. Click. I mean, I'm going to get a phone call. I'm going to get an email. I mean, there, there's opposition there. Read the book Radical by David Platt. And you, will, you will see story after story of believers who... Most of their opposition is coming from other believers that think they're being too radical at what they're doing. And yet, this is what God does. Paul had lots of opposition. Some within the community of faith and some from without it. Money was a major issue for Paul and the early church. Um, The rest of Romans 15, if we had time to read down through this, Paul is talking about how he desires to go to Rome, but currently he is on his way to Jerusalem with an offering. There have been these Gentile churches. They have heard the message. They have heard teaching from Paul. And you know what their response was? We want to give money to that. You hear teaching. You give money to that. 
Paul is going to take this specifically to the church in where? Jerusalem. So Paul tells us here in these passages, um, I think verse 26, from Macedonia to Archaea, I have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, um, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and I have delivered it to them, um, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And so Paul is telling them, hey, I I want to come see you. I've got to finish something here. These churches, these believers have heard the teaching of the gospel from me. They're contributing. They're being generous. They want to help the poor in foreign lands. Foreign lands to them were Jerusalem. So Paul is taking this money to Jerusalem. But do you know what happens to Paul when he gets to Jerusalem? The Jewish people get ticked at him. And they put him in prison. And you know how Paul, he does make it to Rome in chains. This is the rest of the story. Opposition. Now, what I probably should do is spend an entire time talking about generosity and giving to the local church. Because much of what Rome, or what Paul is getting at here in Rome, and what he's wanting from these brothers and sisters, is money. Why? So they can use that money and it will allow him to get the gospel to Spain. Money is a delicate issue within the church. If you're new to the church, you know what you say about us, is all we do is take up, talk about money. Every time we ask you about money, every time you come to church. It's always a very delicate thing. And there were some churches within Paul's writing, you know what he told them? Just keep your money. Because your heart isn't joyful in giving it. So just keep it. Because God didn't need it. God doesn't want it. He wants you to give joyfully for the sake of the spreading of the gospel. Other times though, what does Paul say? You need to give. It is right for a man, a believer, a pastor, preacher, teacher to receive his wage for spreading the gospel. It's a delicate thing. It's a difficult thing for us to work out. And yet, it's still an important thing. There will be opposition there. So, in closing, how do you figure out then what your holy ambition is? All right. How do you figure that out? That's the big question. I just don't know God's will for my life. Right? What's the purpose of my life? What does God want me to do? How do you figure that out? Well, I think that we figured out the same way um, that Paul figured out his holy ambition. And that is through the Word. Look in your scripture right there where he, he now quotes, there in the beginning in verse 21, he quotes Isaiah 52, 15. And he says this, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15. Those who have never been told will see, and those who have never heard will understand. See, I think sometimes we are guilty of skipping over these quotations in the Old Testament when we see them in the New Testament. Yet there's great significance in Paul quoting this text. Remember, Paul is a believer in Jesus. 
but was a Jew of Jews before Jesus saved him. Paul knew the Old Testament was trained in the depths of the understanding and its meaning based on Jewish interpretation. He probably had Isaiah chapter 53 memorized even as a kid, and yet this passage that he has known forever and ever and ever did not come alive, ladies and gentlemen, until he saw it in the flesh through the person of Jesus. Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years before. It was a part of the Old Testament. But when did it become real and alive? was through the gospel. And when Paul began to read these things that he had known forever, those who have never heard have been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So God illuminates this passage for Paul, calling him then to do what? To be the guy. To take this gospel message of Jesus Christ as a holy ambition. God was doing this in the body of Christ, which he expressed in a variety of ministries and callings. See, many of us are all waiting for some mystical experience with God. You know, you're, you're waiting to walk past a, past a bush and it to be on fire, yet not consuming, and a voice coming from it. Right? We're waiting on that. We're waiting on some sort of like mystical dream and God to show up and have a voice like Darth Vader and tell us what it is He has for us to do. Right? It's like going out into the middle of the woods, taking your Bible and closing it and saying, God, speak to me. I just want to hear your voice. See, we're doing that. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what your burning bush is? It's the Word of God. God doesn't typically, I'm not saying that He doesn't ever, but God typically anymore doesn't do the burning bush thing doesn't make a voice from heaven just cry out from the heavens. The way that God is going to show you what your holy ambition is is by you being deeply dedicated in pursuing Jesus and deeply dedicated to the words of God. It is not going to happen through a bush being burnt. It's going to be happening by you devouring the text by devouring what these words say. And in and through that, just like Paul, something is going to jump out about the call of Christ upon your life and it is going to wreck you and change you. And that is what our church needs. People to be in the Word so much that He begins to illuminate to you the very thing that He has called you to do. For example, some of you, if you know Matthew chapter 25 it says, what you have done to the least of these, it says like if you come across somebody and they don't have a house, give them a house. If they don't have food, give them food. If they don't have a coat, you give them coat. And then at the end, he says in Matthew chapter 25, what you have done unto the least of these, you have done unto me. See, I know that passage. I love that passage. And yet some of you are going to read that and it's going to grip every fiber of your being. And then you're going to be compelled with a holy ambition to do whatever you can in what we call social justice. You're going to care about the poor. You're going to care about the homeless. You're going to care about the, the broken hearted and the left out and the kids with, with special needs or kids with cancer or old people. But you're going to have this deep desire and it is going to be in you more than it's going to be in some of us. And that is your holy ambition. For me, 
as a college student, when I started reading the, the passages about God's sovereignty, I can't help it. It is deeply involved in my life. It is, it is a tight-knit thing for me to think that God is in control of all things. The passage that jumped out and changed my life, again, was the Great Commission. Heard it my entire life. But once Jesus saved me, that idea of making disciples is the call of my life. Whether my church is big, church is small, I must have some relationships that I am pouring into. Because it's in me. It's in me. And it will be in you as well. Some of you will be about poverty. Again, some of you about racial reconciliation. Um, you will have this idea within you that is going to jump out. We see this if you were to study people like Augustine, Martin Luther, other men and women in church history. You'll know that they've known the Bible for years and years and years. But something for Martin Luther, I believe it, he, was, he was actually used in the bathroom. He had a major problem with constipation, church history tells us. And he's been reading the Bible and reading the Bible and he needed something to read while he struggled. And in that was reading the book of Romans where it says you are justified by faith. Though he had known that passage and known that passage, for some reason on that day it wrecked his life. Forever changing history. Forever changing the call of the gospel. Curious about something? Go. If you want to know what it's like, maybe God's tugging on you to be a foreign missionary, go for a week. Go for 10 days. We will help do whatever. We have connections in Kazakhstan. We have connections in Haiti. And we have connections now in Africa. If there are any of those places that you want to go, go. Go check it out. It wasn't until I visited a foreign country that I had a heart for global missions. Though I've been told about it all my life. When you set foot on foreign soil and you see the way that people live, and you see where the gospel is not, you can't help but be wrecked by that. Now that doesn't mean that God has called me to go live there long term. He may. He may you. But He has called me to be passionate about compelling people to go, and passionately about being generous about supplying financial gifts for people to go. Um, I think about the Hazels, my sister and brother-in-law. Um, adoption. Nowhere on these people's radar. Nope. We're preaching through the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 27. It tells us to visit with the widows and to take care of orphans, right? Within that same month, an earthquake slams into Haiti. Todd goes there for his normal job, still not looking at adoption. And what happens? In that land, you remember a passage. You meet a little boy. It's a holy ambition. Has it been easy? No. Has it been a four and a half year or five year journey? Yes. Has there been lots of questions? Yes. And yet it is a holy ambition. It is in us, for us, for God's glory, for our good. Um, Henry Varley says this, The world is yet to see what God can do with a man who is fully consecrated to him. But by God's help, I aim to be that man. So, Mission Church, in view of the Gospel, may we each and every one of us have a holy ambition. I can think of nothing greater to give your life to than the, than the one who gave His life for you. And that is Jesus. 
May we be a church that is more ecstatic and, and more thankful and prideful on the number of people that we send out than the people that we gather in. If you would, stand with me. I'm going to pray.